Reversal, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of flight and British Railways, uh, it's Matt Resby. Hi, Matt. Hi. You've joined me in the cellar. Um, we are in the same continent and country for yeah. the first time in a year or so, and uh, recording for the first time for a long time. Yeah, I think we uh, worked out it's like four years or something since the mm. last time we recorded, since our 100th episode. Yeah, and what we're on now, like two... 50 something i think this is 263 wow where's it all going i don't know out into the ether mm-hmm. and into people's ears yeah but it's been nice hanging out we've been jollying around uh stuffing our faces walking my dog it's been pretty nice it has been very very nice uh doing better at a quiz than we expected yeah we um we took it well we didn't take the pub quiz to school but the winning score was 24 and we got 20 so we went far off yeah it was very high level, very high standard. Mm. Um, but you've been at the podcast festival this weekend, haven't you? The London podcast festival. Yes, I went to the London podcast festival, my, my fourth time attending. And I saw some very good shows. I went to see Adam Buxton do his show live, which is a lot of fun. I think anyone who's listened to his podcast will know will know that it's very kind of like rambly and conversational. And it's interesting seeing something like that that is so deliberately unstructured like being done in front of a live studio audience mm. um but it was a it was really fun entertaining conversation i also saw a show called this paranormal life mm-hmm. uh, which i hadn't seen before i hadn't heard anything about before i always try and watch at least one thing that i'm not a fan of and don't have any knowledge of um which was these two guys um who my understanding based on the show that i watched is like um they investigate different paranormal activity on the podcast in kind of like a funny silly way and the way they did it was they were trying to summon the demon payman mm. live in front of the uh the audience in hall two of king's place london uh which was a lot of fun um i also saw beef and dairy network who i hadn't seen live before and that's really fun that's a very strange show that it's almost impossible to really describe and make it as entertaining <laughs> it sounds as entertaining <laughs> as it actually is but I was I really enjoyed seeing that wooden overcoats mm-hmm. were very very good that that shows like so wonderful to hear recorded and you know when they put it out as this like wonderful like perfectly constructed uh, series on podcast but seeing it live was really fun because you do get an extra energy especially when you realize how much everyone kind of fits your imagined version of what their characters are mm. yeah. yeah. It's very weird being in the same room. It's been a while. Like I said, it's been a while since we've done this. Mm. Yeah, and it's odd because... On I, mic, like, whenever I'm here, we always hang out. <laughs> just yeah. kind of, like, chat. Yeah. Like. And it's weird that I just can't, like, scroll through my correspondence mm. <laughs> while, while uh, we're recording. But Yeah. Um, well, there's no news this week because this we're recording this, like, six days ahead of when we would usually be recording. Mm-hmm. Nothing has happened. Yeah. Stand down. So I guess we'll probably just go into our main topic, which is that we went to see the movie Hustlers together. We did, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit, and maybe about how it fits into the pantheon of you know crime movies, particularly like these kind of true crime con sort of movies that mm-hmm. you know like 
particularly in the wake of something like Goodfellas, which is obviously a major, major touchstone. But Hustlers is a movie by Lorraine Scafaria, and it's uh, based on the real story of uh, strippers who, in the wake of the financial crash in 2008, started drugging potential clients and like maxing out their credit cards and you know making a bit of a making a profit for themselves like trying to cope with this sudden loss of revenue that came from you know wall street really tightening up loads of traders that they had previously relied on losing their jobs at stars constance Wu as the kind of the audience surrogate character Mm -hmm. uh jennifer lopez in kind of what's many many people are touting as a real kind of like star turn for her uh, smaller roles from people like Cardi B and Lizzo, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it got a lot of buzz, particularly out of festivals where I think it played. I want to say it played at Toronto, um, just like a few days before it opened, and got like really great reviews there. And I had I had very high hopes for it, and I really, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. Mm, uh, me too. It was. I mean, we may as well get it out of the way now. There's a real elephant in the room we need to discuss about um, a text that has a major influence on it which kind of like haunts the entire film like a specter and that's the chicken fingers episode of community mm, yeah. yeah there was something very familiar about it yeah like the, the the moving camera the sense of being taken into the background of a kind of a seedy world having mm-hmm. having these processes described to you in great detail voiceover it's all there mm-hmm. but it actually for all the talk about how it's a uh, you know heavily influenced by goodfellas it actually more reminded me of something like The Big Short, mm. which is um, has that's directed by Adam McKay, and Adam McKay and Will Ferrell produced this film. Yes, so kind of the fingerprints are, uh, are kind of there, but it, it does very much feel like its own thing. Mm. But then you know, all films feel like another film. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to find anything that's like really just completely startling and original. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the train coming at the station. No, yeah, I hadn't before. seen that before. Well, they'd seen the live show. They've <laughs> <laughs> never seen the uh, the the adaptation. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Constance Wu is uh, very good in it. You will know her from Crazy Rich Asians and what else was she in? Fresh off the fresh boat. off the boat. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Cool. And yeah, J Lo is very good in it. It's the first time I've seen her act in since nineteen ninety eight, I think, mm. because she doesn't do a lot of it. She doesn't really give much to do mm. in a lot yeah. of a lot of the material she gets. And so it's nice to see her doing something that that kind of stretches her capabilities a bit. Because anyone who kind of saw her first on the scene and things like you turning out of sight kind of thought well he's actually a very interesting actor who then just went immediately into doing not very interesting things yeah and who i think because she was doing both the music and the acting at the same time it kind of felt as if she wasn't really doing like as much of the the actual like hard acting work that i think she probably could have done if she'd really gone that route and Mm. you know like the whole Benefer thing really did kind of derail both her and Ben Affleck's career for a while, like just being such tabloid tabloid features. They were difficult to take seriously, I yeah. guess, as and, any, and, anything. And Gigli, really. Even more hard to take seriously. Yeah. But, I yeah, I thought that she was, she was really great in this. Like, she really did project that sort of sense of world weariness that you need for a character who orchestrates this whole scheme to, you know, get you know kind of rob people (laughs) who deserve to be robbed in many cases Mm. and it requires a certain steeliness i think and i think she really um projects that in a major way Mm. and um the film's pretty good overall as we've said but the 
some of the weaker points are some of the the kind of very rushed character mm. um, moments where they kind of it does suffer where we spend a little bit too much time with people who aren't particularly important to the story and then not enough time. We both came out of it feeling that the film actually could have been about ten minutes longer and could have yeah. um, taken its time a little more to establish those relationships and and those those characters. Yeah, it's kind of a movie of two halves in a lot of ways because the first half is very much pre-crash mm-hmm. about them explaining you know what it is to work in a fairly high-end strip club their relationships their clients the amount of money that's going along j-lo takes constance Wu's character destiny under her wing Mm -hmm. and you know kind of teaches her how to be better at yeah basically you know giving the customers what they want and yeah benefiting herself at the same time and there's kind of a nice warmth to their relationship but after the crash happens unsurprisingly you know things shift quite noticeably for them as 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 people and in their professions and so a lot of the characters that you met in the first half aren't in the second half Mm -hmm. and even the ones that you did meet like you know cardi b and lizzo are both in it only for like a scene or two each Mm -hmm. uh usher's barely in it yeah Yeah. um but um in a real role that really stretches him as an actor yeah um and then, so the second half of the movie, you know, they're the constant that keeps going, uh, that keeps going. But then there are new characters introduced who feel a little more, a little less well sketched out, mm-hmm. I would say. Uh, they're still like played by good actors. Madeline Brewer, who I really loved in Cam, has kind of a role in it. But yeah. her role is like she's introduced very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then there's just this sense, oh, like she's a wild card that could mess things up forever there's not a lot of time spent actually on that because she, she seems very peripheral until she's very much not mm. and so it's, yeah like that that section feels like it could have been beefed up a little bit and to have really emphasized the lengths that these women have to go to in order to survive when suddenly their main source of income is completely cut away mm. yeah it does it does a very good job of of making that difference between the pre-crash and post-crash quite stark. Mm. Um, but yeah, some of the yeah character stuff feels very rushed and some of the people we spent time with in, in the first scenes, which some of the scenes in the strip club when they're all together and kind of Mercedes rule is the kind of the, the, the matriarch kind of ruling over and feels a little bit like the scenes in Showgirls mm, yeah. where it's all very shallow and like, um, like you say, we're, the audience surrogate Constance Wu is taking us through this world, which is, you know, supposed to kind of make us feel a little bit kind of set, like taken aback at kind of how kind of upfront it is. But it all feels a little rushed and, and cliched, I think, some of those scenes. Yeah. Especially when there's a bit where they kind of go around the room and they're talking about their relationships and it's like, mm-hmm. Ugh, okay. It just wasn't particularly well done. But some of the individual scenes, every every scene between Constance Wu and J-Lo. Yeah. They're really great. Yeah, um, really there's a fizzy. really, really funny scene where they're trying to cook up mm-hmm. their own mixture of uh, ketamine and, and MDMA, which is pretty cool. Yeah, um, great sight gag, isn't it? Yep. And there's yeah, there's there's moments like that that kind of makes the film because it'd be very easy for that film to be a little bit over earnest and take itself a bit too seriously, but they kind yeah. of catch themselves in several several instances and stop that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also there is i mean like that bit's very funny because it's almost kind of like a gender flipped breaking bad of like the Mm -hmm. (laughs) of these two people kind of stumbling into (laughs) a much more serious criminal enterprise than perhaps they had originally planned for Mm. um i do think that there's a wonderful 
uh, zip to the movie, particularly when it has to do like the montages of them drugging the guys and kind of like explaining the the details of what they're doing. There's a bit that I was really I really liked where you know they're showing all these guys being drugged and them kind of grabbing their cards and swiping the cards and everything. Set to a Scott Walker song, which I thought was a very pleasant surprise. I wasn't expecting to hear that, considering the rest of the soundtrack is mainly pop hits of the like late. Tw- tw- uh, 2000s early 2010s mm-hmm. uh, to get like a, a burst of scott walker in this song that's actually kind of quite menacing mm-hmm. it is really cool um but yeah i think like that sort of stuff it feels very kind of fresh and exciting because i think it's maybe tackling an area that hasn't been covered like that much in movies it's certainly not from that perspective Mm. um of the girls themselves as or, or not mediated through the male gaze so much as mm. as showgirls undoubtedly is yeah um i think that that made those interesting to me even mm. if like you could really kind of draw a line between that, that stuff like the you know like the following a character from behind as they are walking into you know um their their own world which is mm-hmm. obviously a very good fellowsy sort of thing characters directly addressing the camera which is also uh, a good thing and also a kind of an adam mckay thing there were moments where it felt as if they were doing the thing that adam mckay likes to do where they're like okay we're going to kind of play with the form a little bit now but not as obnoxiously as he tends to in his recent movies mm, yeah i thought the film did a really great job of getting the morality of it across yeah um, because you were kind of with the girls pretty much all the way mm. Um, and you know, there's, there's that whole idea of, you know, it's all right to rob someone if they're rich, which they kind of sidestep a little bit, but then also doesn't shy away from how grim some of the experiences they went through working in like that VIP room were. Yeah. And particularly like they, there's particular attention paid after the crash to the way in which the clubs started like taking away the cameras that used to be in the vip rooms which were kind of a form of protection Mm -hmm. so the it becomes more akin to prostitution than stripping Mm -hmm. like in some respects and like the things expected of the girls changes quite a bit and it becomes a lot more degradating Mm -hmm. and i think the film does a really has there's a really good balance in the movie between it being sexy but without it being exploitative which again comes to the female gay sort of thing there like it acknowledges that yeah these women are very beautiful Mm -hmm. and they are particularly like you know when j-lo's showing off her moves in her introductory scene Mm -hmm. like very athletic far more so than uh you or i i think it's fair to say yeah i would not be a good pole dancer yeah not really able to do the uh the Flanking or whatever they said it was. Mm, flagging, I believe it's called, uh, okay. when you hold yourself up by your arms. Yeah. Um, no, I just kind of hang there like a lump, <laughs> like a fireman slowly sliding down, like yeah. a bit of shit on a stick, just right. sliding down. That's what I'd be like. But it definitely feels as if there is a, a stronger balance there between that and, and you know, Showgirls is obviously the, the big example, or um, Striptease, the, mm. to me, more movie, where there's always something under... under uh, underwriting it of like yeah like even if you're trying to tell a story about women in this world it still fundamentally seems to be a movie made for men and that doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be the case here i don't think no it doesn't feel that way and there's there's there was actually quite a few points where and this is awful Mm -hmm. there's quite a few points where there was something there was a, a scene lined up and i was like if this was directed by a man yeah this would be framed a lot differently yes and 
it's weird how noticeable that is. There's a really yeah. funny bit, actually, when we're talking about the kind of reversal of the gaze and stuff. Because um, the film's framing device is that Julia Stiles is, an, is, a, is a, a journalist writing a piece about the, uh, the real life um, shenanigans that went on. And she's interviewing the characters, Con- uh, Constance Wu, um, mainly. And there's a bit where she goes to the police station and the cops are saying, oh, man, it's so dangerous out there. These, the guys are getting drugged and, and, like, attacked. We were kind of scared for our safety. And she just kind of looks at them as if to say, hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was a really nice moment. Yeah, that was, that was very, very good. And I like, I mean, that framing device, I think, works really well because initially you're kind of thinking, does it really need this, like, so much? Because it, they, it, you kind of, it, it does that thing where when you have a framing device in a film and it kind of cuts back to it so intermittently, you kind of forget that it's happening. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I guess Julia Stiles is in this movie. But, yeah, towards the end when the scheme starts to fall apart mm-hmm. and it is cutting back to her more often and you are getting those different perspectives on it and particularly, yeah, like, emphasising the fact that the the reason why the scheme works so much is that none of the men were willing willing to report it, which also is kind of an interesting commentary mm. uh, on sexual dynamics. Yeah, and it the the structure of the film is is you know we've seen a lot of it before. It's a kind of very much a rise and fall yeah. of uh, you know in that it is going to get um, compared to Goodfellas a lot, and it has that kind of got too greedy too quick mm. um, kind of feel to it. Um, but it does a great job of of making even if the parameters and the framework is 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 familiar, uh, the content is is pretty fresh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I really do feel as if it take like it's it's the thesis statement, which is is said pretty much outright at the very end of the movie, mm-hmm. is the idea of like America as a place built on people exploiting each other in some way or another, and the you know the characters in this movie just taking that. A step further and um that's obviously an idea that's been done a lot most recently um to talk about another scorsese movie that's like the the kind of the key driving force behind the wolf of wall street mm-hmm. which obviously deals in a similar time period yeah and uh, a very very similar milieu but uh yeah i think like having it focus on people who are considerably further down the totem pole i think does uh, add something to it because even though they make a lot of money out of this and they're able to afford themselves a fairly uh, decent lifestyle as a result of all the stuff that they do mm-hmm. there is definitely that sense that they are they are kind of the minnows in this this pond full of all of these these people who are out there making hundreds of millions of dollars by you know exploiting people and just kind of uh you know, taking found money essentially and enriching themselves. Mm. And even though at points the girls get to the stage in their success of their nefarious plan that they have afforded themselves decent apartments and, and nice Christmas dinners and things, they're still in a structure, a societal structure where um, they're taking the money from the men who can afford to lose 50000 yeah. a weekend and not report it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, in itself a terrifying. Yeah. And I do really like the, speaking of the Christmas scene, I do really like that scene where they kind of all gather together and they're all having a nice fun time. Mm-hmm. I think there's a great sense of camaraderie throughout a lot of the movie, which I found really, and that's that second half of the movie, by it, the film's nature, it has less of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nice to kind of be reminded of the sense that all these, you know, they're all being drawn together by a shared purpose, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of the legality and morality of that purpose. Mm. We talked a bit about when we came out of the film about um, what the director had done before. Yes. 
And what did we find out? She had directed a movie called The Meddler with uh, Susan Sarandon and Rose Byrne, which mm-hmm. came out a couple of years ago. And yeah. It was just a very, very good little like indie comedy. And she had also directed a, um, Looking for a Friend at the End of the World. Mm-hmm. Which was not particularly good. But, um, you know, this film, Hustlers, um, kind of is a, you know, uh, from a directorial standpoint, um, very much can be a real calling card because it's pretty dynamic, very interesting, mm-hmm. and the kind of thing that gets the attention of uh, of the people who make decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, she has also directed some television, but mainly it seems just a couple of episodes of New Girl and some TV movies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I think this feels like more of, a, like you say, more of a calling card, more of a statement movie than the previous ones, which on the one hand, you know, um, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World had... That was kind of a notorious, and maybe not flops, not the right word, because it wasn't like a hugely expensive movie. But that was like a movie that seemed like really hyped and didn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the Meddler was a movie that got like really good reviews, but didn't really get a huge amount of traction, mm-hmm. despite being very good. Whereas this one's got both. It's like been a pretty sizable success in the US and around the world, or in the places that it is so far released. Mm. Is it sitting pretty uh, kind of near the top of the box office in America? Is that in yeah. Joker? Isn't it slugging it out? Uh, that and it Joker's out in, in like two weeks. In two weeks, oh, okay. Yeah, so it's it's found a good spot. You know, it, it opened to thirty three million mm-hmm. um, behind it. Chapter two with its second weekend of forty one million, I think, which is very very good for a movie that is you know it's an original movie. It's kind of mid budget. Um, it's from STX, who generally don't have big opening weekends. They're kind of like a mid budget studio who until now's big their biggest hit were the bad moms films mm-hmm. um so they're a studio also that has had tremendous success with making movies that don't appeal to or that aren't aimed primarily at the audiences that you know every other studio is chasing with your your, your blockbusters mm. and i think that's been borne out here you know there was a breakdown of the uh, going around, I think it was in a Deadline article, there was a breakdown of the attendance of the opening weekend for Hustlers, and it was pointing out that, like, two-thirds of the audience were non-white. There was a huge number of women uh, going to see it, and particularly women of colour, and it mm-hmm. very clearly is appealing to audiences that are otherwise underserved by mm-hmm. the films that are, quote-unquote, made for everyone. Yeah, but it, does, it, it's, it doesn't seem as a proposition to be, like, hey, come and see this film that's very specifically marketed to these people. No. It's just that's the audience that's coming out for it. Yeah, and that who find, you know, because of the cast, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very, very diverse cast and a cast with a huge social media presence who, like, really draw in those sort of people and a story that, again, like, can appeal to people who feel rightly that they're excluded from, like, the power centers of society mm-hmm. and, you know, seeing a group of women of color rising up and trying to get a piece of that pie for themselves i think has got to be very appealing mm, do you think this is going to be an oscar uh, well an awards contender at the very least i think j-lo's got a very good chance of a supporting actress nomination mm-hmm. um i think there's some there's probably going to be some arguments about whether or not she's a lead co-lead or a supporting guy i would say the performance just for the fact that she doesn't have as much of an arc mm-hmm. and that's kind of how i tend to view it over like screen time or anything, I think she would probably fit into supporting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, unless they do like a Last King of Scotland sort of thing, <laughs> but mm. they're just kind of like the more famous character or the more famous actor gets to be lead. Um, but I think she would have a very very strong 
chance at a nomination and probably a win as you know very much fitting into that oscar tradition of someone who has done good work in the past is generally very popular in a successful movie and you know taking on a role that feels different to stuff that she's done previously like you know like you can think of her as like mickey rourke and the wrestler or something like that mm. so uh, yeah and um whilst mickey rourke spent you know 20 years being punched in the face mm-hmm. and having terrible plastic surgery to cover it she just spent those years and kind of becoming a bit of a well intentionally or not a tabloid fixation and, yeah. and concentrating on other things like having a pop career and doing quite asinine romantic comedies but mm. i can't even really name many films she's done between uh there was monster in law i remember monster that was a big one Her made in... in manhattan is that yeah hers? uh then La, uh the backup plan i think was one mm. um a couple of years ago yeah she's like been in a lot of movies that kind of come and go that don't seem to leave that much of an impression. Yeah, and this definitely does. Yeah, absolutely. I think it. I think it may even be her best opening weekend as well in terms of like her career, um, which is which probably isn't that surprising just because she's one of those people who, despite being very very famous, has n- not been in that many actual big films. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Apart from the Ice Age movies, which apparently she does voices in. That's news to me, Ed. It was news to me as well. I was looking up her box office results earlier in preparation for this, and I was like, oh, I guess she, I guess she voices characters in the Ice Age movies. Mm. Well, yeah. Maybe that's what's kept her ticking over. And, like, she's a producer on this as well, isn't she? Yeah. So this is clearly, like, a project she's, like, fully invested in in mm. both senses of the world. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, and yeah. it's a good one to back, I think. Mm, yeah. And it wasn't Annapurna, was it? But Megan Ellison's name's on it. Annapurna are one of the co-producers. Oh, okay. So I think it's like STX are handling most of it, and then maybe Annapurna had the rights to the script at some point or whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like it's one of those things where it's clearly a co-financing deal, um, and one that a success that they need because Annapurna have had a pretty rough year, mm-hmm. a couple of years really. They've not had that many big hits big to hits, their name. No. So they need to turn this into a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> the the Hustlers, Big Short, Wolf of Wall Street, Extended Universe, mm. where we just spend hours and hours and hours with awful people who have yeah. got too much money. I think, uh, you know, you can do Hustlers like an anthology series, just each one on a real, a different real life case of someone, you know, hustling, someone mm. conning someone, uh, famous people. I think that could, or, or rich people. I think you could, you could get something out of that. Yeah, I'd be into it. Uh, and just, yeah, just keep saying it's all part of the same because <laughs> it's all taking place in the real world. Yeah, and then have a Bad Mums Christmas there and keep that mm. in the same universe. Yeah. And then maybe, because two of the characters in this are, are, are mums and there's a, there's, yes. a, there's a specific thread where they're saying kind of motherhood is, is, is a type of mental illness. Mm. Um, and yeah, maybe that's it. Crossover. Yeah. J-Lo and Constance Wu turn up with the, the Bad Mums at Christmas. Yeah, square off against Christine Bransky. Mm-hmm. That's what we Who else is in it? Kristen Bell? Uh, Kristen Bell, Mila Kunis. Catherine Hahn? Uh, yes, I yep. think so. That's uh, a hell of a cast. Yeah. Uh, Christina Applegate, I think, plays like one of the rival ones. Possibly. Um, but yeah, like the, the those are the big three. Cheryl Hines, I think, plays Probably. someone. Plays mm-hmm. some mum or something. Yeah. Yeah. Good series. <laughs> Third <laughs> yeah. one's out this year. Is actually... Oh, next year. I think it's one that focuses on the, the, grand, the, the, the mothers of the bad... Oh, the mothers of the... The bad... Bad mothers. Yeah. Okay. The bad grandmas. Mm-hmm. Well, we've had bad grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> All sisters part of are, the same universe. The sisters are doing it for themselves. Exactly. 
Um, but yeah, so I think it's it's a it's a really good movie. Like, I think it's one of the most enjoyable films I've seen this year. Um, and yeah, there's just like lots of little nice touches in it. There's um, a bit where they have um, a sting operation where one character has to wear a wire mm-hmm. and uh, spy on the others. And the way they play it out is, you know, they show the policeman listening to the tape and then it cuts to the scene itself but all the sound is just mm. the sound from the recording yeah it's very clever yeah it's very very clever and like you know when she the person wearing it is walking away the sound of someone else talking fades away mm-hmm. and it's a very it's a very neat trick I, I really thought that was a, a nice way of breaking the form without it being like too obnoxious yeah 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 without the record scratching you know yeah hey this is me yeah exactly how did I get here yeah exactly how does it rank for you year-wise? Because we're getting towards the end now. It is. I mean, yeah, it's 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 a. I I, I very much enjoyed it. I, I think that it did have a few too many problems in those early scenes when trying to establish the characters and the relationships that felt a little well worn for me to kind mm. of really push it up there. But in terms of enjoyment, I haven't enjoyed that many more films this year in the cinema. Yeah. And yeah, like performances, and like I said to you afterwards, when we both said it was a little felt a little short. Uh, when the 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 title cards come up at the end to tell you what the real life character, what happened to the real life characters, as is the way of these films that are based on real life events, mm. um, I was like, oh, it's ending. Yeah, I actually kind of towards the end, I was really enjoying watching the wheels come off this operation and and you know how well it was working, but then also at the same time. Unlike in, to reference Goodfellas, when Ray Liotta is having his terrible day, when he's, uh, you know, you can, you're really seeing it and you're kind of almost thinking, this guy really deserves to, <laughs> to yeah. get caught. Yeah. Whereas in this one, I was like, I kind of hope they get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, also, like, you, you know, obviously that Constance Wu isn't in prison because she's being interviewed mm-hmm. and she's clearly in quite a nice house. <laughs> yeah. Kind of wonder if somehow, yeah, like somehow they managed to sneakily get away with it, mm-hmm. which would have been nice. Yeah. Nice to see Buzz from uh, Home Alone. Yeah, in a supporting yeah. role. Yeah, he's some... had a bit of a career renaissance recently. Yeah, there's some nice. Yeah, because he's also Frank been... Wally as well. Yeah, recognised him. Uh, uh, John Glazer. Yeah, who... I thought that he was gonna jam J Lo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some nice like supporting characters in it. Yeah, he plays a douchebag yeah. boss, which must have been very hard for him. Yeah, it's very much in his wheel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's just very good. It's a very good movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of other nice things to say about it because I do think it's like it's just so nice to see like a big, like all bigish, like mainstream movie that really just seemed to have a lot in its mind in mm-hmm. terms of like ideas of gender and sex and power dynamics and you know the very notion of America. Like it feels like a movie that's not like, making those the 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 kind of the boldest kind of statements. Like it's you'll you'll never go broke. Badmouthing Wall Street, for example, mm. um, you know, it's a pretty much a perennial American pastime, and a, a correct one. But like, it's quite nice to see in a in a, an age where I feel like most mainstream stuff just goes so far out of its way to be political. Mm-hmm. For a movie to just kind of really have it sewn into the fabric in that way, I think is really really nice and refreshing. Mm, yeah, I really liked the t- the the credits at the end yeah and the strip club announcer yeah it was very over, over the top when you're kind of like oh this is just part of it oh no he's talking to us yeah yeah <laughs> which was really fun uh, and there's a kind of nice joke where he says uh, the girls aren't coming out again uh, and then they do it's yeah just sort of with us yeah yeah so obviously we've uh 
invoked the name of Goodfellas mm-hmm. a fair bit over the course of this. I think it's it's it seems unfair to compare it to that because obviously that's a kind of a great movie that's been canonized so mm-hmm. much yeah. over the last you know thirty years mm. since it came out twenty nine but you know close enough. How and how fair do you think it is for people to compare movies like this to Goodfellas? Is it like is it like that that thing that you know everyone makes fun of when or maybe it doesn't happen so much anymore? But like whenever a new British film came out, everyone got really excited about it. It'd be always like the best British film since Train Spotting. Yeah. Like every single poster would have that. Do you think it's kind of unfair for us to hold that as a standard, considering there is a fairly bit, there's a kind of a fairly big wealth of movies now that you could kind of put into that entire subgenre? Yeah, I I I do think it's unfair because that assumes that Goodfellas is the most original film mm, ever made yeah. where you know Scorsese was doing that shtick since Mean Streets yeah. and you know honing it and and working on it and Goodfellas kind of felt like the kind of the pinnacle of of that idea that he's been chasing for 25 years of his film career mm. and it's certainly not fresh and original it lifts yeah. shots from some of the oldest movies ever made, the yeah. Great Train Robbery uh, reference being one of them. I feel like it's a godsend for lazy film critics yes, who can true. just evoke Goodfellas. It obviously shares some of the DNA, mm-hmm. um, but it shares the DNA with you know a lot of movies. Like it, it reminded me more, like I said, of The Big Short, yeah, um, and some of Adam McKay's films before I really kind of twigged that he had had a hand in it, yeah, um, and it felt like a more cynical movie than Goodfellas. A more mm. Goodfellas seemed about really being about the pressures of being an into organized crime. Mm-hmm. Whereas outside of the organized crime, we didn't really get a lot. They didn't criticize the government in a yeah. or the, the, the society in general. They really only seemed concerned with themselves. Whereas yeah. Hustlers has more to say yeah. about the time, about the, 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 the time that it's set. I feel like Goodfellas stretches a long period of time, but it doesn't say anything particular about the 70s yeah. or the 80s, mm. um, other than the music was cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas the hus- Hustlers very much um, is both an entertaining film and a story about characters who are interesting, whilst also being a comment on a specific time period rather than a organization that the goodfellas is 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 a, is mainly concerned with yeah goodfellas you know, by its very nature and that's kind of the thing that's really good about it is it's very insular it's mm-hmm. very much about uh, this hermetically sealed little community of people who all operate under you know very specific rules mm-hmm. that they have to work under and that's and that is the exact opposite of what hustlers is going for it's like very much of the moment it's very much connected into the what you know where these women fit into this broader hierarchy which they actually lay out basically at one point when they're talking about the three kind of wall street guys that they mm-hmm. are interested in um before their scheme really kicks off but you know like there is a definite sense of they are part of this wider world and you get more sense of like who the cops are chasing them a little bit more the sense of the men that they target um and uh, yeah, in Goodfellas, like it really is just the mob guys and the police who are the only other kind of like major force they ever really become. They really come into contact with a, just this kind of abstract threat. Mm. Whereas I kind of feel like the handful of scenes you get of the cops, you do get a, a greater sense of who they are and why 
it takes a while for them to take seriously you know these reports they're getting from men saying hey i went to a strip club and i lost fifty thousand dollars yeah i I feel like i'm gonna say it uh, i feel like people making the comparison to goodfellas might be driven from a position of sexism Mm. the fact that a woman's directed this film yeah whereas if you think about something like boogie nights yeah which is a very good film Mm -hmm. it's very similar to goodfellas Mm -hmm. (laughs) structurally tonally stylistically it's very similar to goodfellas Yeah, yeah, yeah but because paul thomas anderson was hot shit at the time and he's a man People will be like, oh, he's clearly evidenced by, like, influenced by Scorsese, rather than, oh, he's just ripping off Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like you could level the criticism of it being um, too familiar to Goodfellas to Boogie Nights yeah. than you could more um, to Hustlers, because yeah. Hustlers doesn't feel like that. It feels like a film that absorbs some of those elements and shares some of the DNA, but it's a, it's a story about a, a crime enterprise that went really well for a bit and then went terribly yeah which is uh part of the long tradition of american crime movies going back to you know fucking little caesar yeah exactly yeah i think um i think also there's some very facile aesthetic similarities like mm-hmm. like we talked about earlier the the camera there's like a long take of you know following a camera uh, a character in third person as they're going through uh an establishment mm-hmm. which is obviously kind of it's synonymous with goodfellas and but i, I do but then also it felt very much like the bit in black swan yeah like the framing wise particularly yeah, where you don't like, actually see the character's face yeah um which is you know Adonofsky's ripping off the dardem brothers <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it, it's very much like it's an extension of that idea yeah and that's how film works. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, also like for some reason, like when people want to say, "Oh, that's Scorsese," they just mean the camera's moving. Mm. Yeah, and which it is, it does, and it the camera very, moves. Yeah, it moves very, very well. There's and, music in it. Uh, yeah, it's very well edited and very pacey. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it does feel as if it's it's again like they have. There's just like that one reference point as opposed to thinking, "Oh, this." many movies that existed before Goodfellas and there have been many movies made since that kind of have done very similar things mm-hmm. and to just kind of like slap that on as a reference point is is kind of lazy. It's very lazy. But it's also an indictment of like Hollywood filmmaking that there's not really like a wealth of female directed movies about crime that you compare mm. it to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we have to have this conversation. Yeah. That like people are just saying, well, it's good, but like it rips a lot of, of Goodfellas, which yeah. is... You know, like I said, isn't something people said about Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Mm. I mean, they said it like cribs off Scorsese or it's a homage to Scorsese or whatever. But it's just pretty much straight lifting most of it. Yeah, exactly. For no actual, with no actual depth to anything it's doing. Yeah. Just stylistically very hollow. Yeah. Creating its own little world Mm -hmm. of of East Ed gangsters. Yeah. And Boogie Nights kind of has the same thing as well. It's very hermetic, very insular in Mm -hmm. its focus and, and singular in its focus on the world of of porn in the 70s and 80s Mm -hmm. to no kind of greater societal effect Mm. boogie nights is actually shares a lot of dna with (laughs) with the hustlers come to think of it yeah there's a lot of things that has in common yeah i think the yeah in particular in terms of like the the family element the family element the 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 changing of the times and Mm. people being driven to more desperate straits yeah uh, except things don't really get better for the no. characters in Boogie Nights. They do not get better. Yeah, they they have the the precipitous fall, and it just gets worse. Than whereas these ones, like they have they they fall, but then they rise again, and mm-hmm. then, then the cops show up. Yeah, 
um, good arrest scenes in in uh, Hustlers. I thought it was great. Well. The one for Mercedes, yeah, uh, arrested, leaving prison. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, very good. And it also like one thing it reminded me of, but I'm uh, in the sense of like, oh, this did this way better. Is uh, it reminded me a lot of like um, American Hustle and mm-hmm. some of the recent David O. Russell movies, which if you want to talk about people ripping off Scorsese, <laughs> he's look no further. He's really leaning into that of late. Yeah. Um, but where I what I really disliked about American Hustle is like that felt like a movie that was all that was just all energy with nothing really to say, mm. and just like characters in period costumes kind of moving around and felt like there was split there were always plates spinning but there was never any real sense of what the stakes were for any of the characters what the the plot actually entailed whereas this it all felt very grounded in character i knew what everyone's motivations were mm-hmm. i understood it i you know kind of related to them and because yeah i understand why they're doing this mm-hmm. and i'm kind of totally on board with them yeah because they seem to be targeting not particularly nice people for the most part um yeah so like for me i was watching it and thinking okay there's been like dozens of movies that have come out particularly in recent years like the the american hustle joy another david o russell movie white boy rick mm-hmm. which are like of various degrees of of quality but always seem more to be like okay we're just going to make a movie that's kind of about crime and then things turn bad and then don't really add up to anything whereas this like i said it really felt as if they were trying to say something broader about society mm-hmm. yeah, in a way that was still fun. Yeah. So we end this episode, we end all our episodes with Shot of First Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you listeners will enjoy as well. Matt, what you got to recommend for the listeners this week? So I've got something that is, has been out for a while now. Most of you have probably seen it. It's a stand-up special or series of stand-up specials on Netflix um, by James Acaster mm. um, called Repertoire. Um, which is, uh, I just watched it for the third time. The first time I watched it, I kind of just had it on in the background, which is not the way to absorb art whilst you're on your mobile telephone <laughs> doing other things. Um, second time I saw it, kind of filled a lot of the blanks that I'd missed the first time around. The third time I really start to appreciate the depth and, and, and just how intricate and well done that is. And also how amazed I am that, you know, comics work year round to get an hour for yeah. a special. And he got four. <laughs> and he... <laughs> He ain't that much of a veteran, is he? Like, no. he's been around a bit, but he's not, like, you know, been working the clubs for, like, 25 years or whatever. He's mm-hmm. got, got four hours of material that is all linked yeah, um, in some way, and it's all great. Um, and, yeah, it's on Netflix. It's um, uh, very clever if you, and very interesting if you're uh, in any way concerned about the eating habits of ducks um, and the best um, Brexit analogy mm-hmm. of all time. Um, which kind of went viral last year anyway, so you probably already heard it. Uh, And also the greatest um, Kettering Town FC football (laughs) song um, you could imagine. Um, But yeah, it's uh, on Netflix and very much available, and you've probably already seen it, so I'll probably shut up about it now, but it's great. Cool. I will recommend a YouTube video or a pair of YouTube videos, which I'd seen before, but you and I uh, watched them today. We did. uh, Because I was telling you about them in the pub last night and i was like oh, we should watch them because they're good uh it's called the bob emergency mm-hmm. it's a video by john boyce who i'm a big fan of been a big fan of for years a guy who works for sp nation he's the head of their media labs and who over the last kind of couple of years has developed a, a unique style of his own for presenting esoteric 
sports facts mm-hmm. and this may be the most esoteric of all of them which is he traces the history of the name bob in mm. major sports particularly in america over nearly two hours as well yes yeah. and it's kind of like you know he initially charts like oh you know like the name bob was very popular in sports in the 1800s mm. and through to the middle part of the 20th century and then dies off to the point where we're only down to like 10 professional 10 sports. bobs 10, yeah and what initially starts out as this kind of very silly observation um he then digs into in granular detail and starts breaking out stories of various bobs and talking about the ways in which they impacted the sports that they were in and some of them are uh, like incredibly funny um there's one uh talking about a pitcher i can't remember which bob it is now but the the pitcher who like bob lemon yes bob lemon who liked they're they're talking about how he may have been like one of the fastest pitchers in the history of baseball and there's a great bit where they're showing how they demonstrated how fast his pitch was Mm -hmm. which was for him to stand on a road in a dress shirt and throw the ball at the same time that someone on a motorcycle (laughs) drove past him 80 miles an hour and he still beat it yeah so there's like funny stuff like that where he's just found these little bits of marginalia from sports history that are just completely strange and weird Mm -hmm. um there's one bob boxer that just lost every single fight he was Bob in. Cyclone. Yeah, Bob Cyclone. How yeah. could you forget it? Uh, a guy who's only notable because he had like 13 fights and lost every single one of them and then never did anything. Mm. Um, but then there's also like this really moving stuff where he talks about someone like Bob Gibson mm-hmm. who's a great uh, American pitcher who uh, had kind of a legendary season in 1968 and he talks about the adversity he faced in mm-hmm. order to get that. Not Not you know just because you know he was black in america in the middle of the 20th century which is a lot of adversity to overcome in general but health as well Mm -hmm. and people like not the people on his team not believing in him and i really love the way in which he draws out all these stories and is at times like very very touching and very moving and it's all wrapped up in this incredibly silly thought experiment of what if i just (laughs) talked about all these (laughs) different sports people named bob Bob. yeah it was such a weird set of parameters to set yourself Mm. and in that you find stories it's just up to you what you can find yeah and he found you know some of these people who were just footnotes in history but incredibly yeah. interesting ones just because their name is bob yeah and they did it in the same year that another bob was doing something absolutely extraordinary yeah um it is very funny and yeah if you've seen any of john boyce's other stuff like uh, breaking madden mm-hmm. or the the nba one that i forget the name of uh, nba y2k nba y2k where he fiddles with the back end <laughs> of video games and simulates multiple seasons in in the um nba y2k one he changes the future all the future players from 10 years from now to their ability scores are all zero basically yeah. and um just simulates like 50 years of base of uh, basketball and just sees what happens to the league where you know games finish one nil after <laughs> no two nil after like seven overtimes yeah um and it's really funny the way that's done and breaking madden is very similar yeah yeah way he's just kind of coming up with insane situations for various players like you know, could we create a situation in which Tom Brady would run from like the five yard line <laughs> uh, and score, despite the fact he's never ever done that in his entire career, and just simulating hundreds of cases of him being tackled and just not being able to do it? <laughs> yeah, he's he's a wonderful man, as John Boyce, very creative and of and just does incredibly strange things. Uh, and and you also, I just love his approach to presenting the data, which is that he kind of creates all of the images he wants to use in Google Earth and like then moves the camera around. So he 
makes data a very physical thing you know it makes a landscape out of yeah. all the data because it's when something appears it doesn't leave the data and when the, the um the earthscape and then every yeah. time he kind of zooms out it's still there so it's just kind of what starts as a simple line graph then turns into kind of this mountain range of bobs yeah uh we, and then like he'll do things like when he's talking about the the long jumper bob beeman bob beeman and he they they kind of like to illustrate the climactic jump of his you know like what he's famous for which i room room for people here but like the camera like zooms up really high and then goes down again it's like all oh, right he's like simulating an incredible jump <laughs> yeah and like that's a nice nice use of this thing for what could be a very like esoteric data point mm-hmm. yeah so that's the bob emergency both parts of it are on youtube, on YouTube. yes watch uh, it it's very funny and yeah and just check out anything john boyce has done because he is he's just a, a wild wild person mm-hmm. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, review us, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. That's goodbye from me.